Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A portrait of an art world provocateur. He's got this secret that he wants to spring upon the world. Bootleggers who outrace the law. Suddenly, the moonshine runners are doing speeds that local guys had never reached before. And a tale of a toxic woman. She leans into the patient, and unexpectedly, she passes out. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. On the banks of the picturesque Carroll Canal in northwestern Maryland, sits the historic city of Frederick. Once a crossroads for both the Union and Confederate armies, today it's the ideal setting for the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. Here, hand-painted dioramas and a set of rudimentary amputation tools offer a glimpse into the grim reality of battlefield injury. But there's a glass object on display that was once used for a different type of military malady. The artifact is a small, rather nondescript bottle, about three centimeters wide, and about three times as tall as it is wide, with a cork stopper. According to the museum's executive director, George Wunderlich, this vial contained one of the most sought-after treatments of the 19th century. During the Civil War, there was an incredible clamor for it. What is this silvery salve, and what role did it play in a battle against a medical nightmare? It's the 1860s in Nashville, Tennessee. The fertile farmlands, busy rail lines, and steamboats of this genteel town have ushered in an era of industrial prosperity. But there's one seedier neighborhood known for its own unique industry. It's called Smoky Row. Smoky Row is a known prostitution area with about 200 self-described prostitutes. And with the country on the verge of civil war, their business is about to boom. In February 1862, 
a faction of the Union Army, led by Major General William Rosecrans, seizes control of the city from the Confederates. When General Rosecrans, the Union General, comes into Nashville, he's brought with him 30,000 Union soldiers. And for the people in Smoky Row, that means 30,000 new potential customers. Patronage on Smoky Row skyrockets, and the brothels hire hundreds of women to keep up with growing demand. The prostitutes increase in number from about 200 nearly overnight to over 1,500. But as business booms, so too does a serious problem. Unfortunately, in the 19th century, where we find rampant prostitution, we are also going to find rampant venereal disease. And these diseases in the 19th century are not only quite painful, but in fact, things like gonorrhea and especially syphilis can be deadly. Hundreds of soldiers are stricken with gonorrhea and syphilis and flood area hospitals in search of treatment. But this health crisis does little to dampen the men's enthusiasm for the world's oldest profession. And with more of his soldiers succumbing to disease, Rosecrans realizes his dwindling manpower could jeopardize his occupation of the city. The consequences of venereal disease at this time really can't be underestimated. We're looking at about 200,000 cases just in the Union Army alone. General Rosecrans has got to stop this if he's going to preserve his army and make his occupation successful. The Major General turns to his colleague, Lieutenant Colonel George Spaulding, for advice. And the Lieutenant Colonel offers up an ambitious plan. His idea is to take all of the prostitutes in Nashville and send them away. A desperate Rosecrans decides to give it a shot. In July 1863, he rounds up as many women as he can find on Smoky Row and ushers them on board a steamboat named the Idaho. He then instructs the captain to take them upriver to Louisville, Kentucky, and leave them there. As Rosecrans watches the Idaho steam away, it seems the plan is a success. But before long, the Idaho and the prostitutes return. A furious Rosecrans confronts the steamboat captain, who explains what happened. The public officials in Louisville, Kentucky, met the boat basically at the dock and said, you can't come here. They don't want this kind of a problem in their city. The captain does the only thing that he can do. He takes the entire ship back down the river to Nashville. Rosecrans is now right back where he started. So he turns again to Lieutenant Colonel George Spaulding for help. This time, Spaulding comes up with an even more radical solution. Instead of relocating the prostitutes, he believes the army should take an active role in overseeing them. What he does is he begins to license prostitutes. And in order to get a license, you must be examined by a medical doctor who will declare whether or not you have a venereal disease. All prostitutes must procure a $5 license, renewable after a weekly physical exam. Anyone who shows signs of disease has her license revoked. But rather than cast these women aside, Rosecrans and Spaulding use the proceeds from their licensing scheme to help them. The military builds a special venereal disease hospital to treat these women when they are found to be diseased. The afflicted are administered small quantities of an antibacterial tonic called silver nitrate, the same chemical contained in this vial 
at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. The unconventional program and its medicinal treatment is a massive success. Rosencrantz was no longer losing large number of soldiers to venereal disease, and so he was able to perform the military job at hand. After the war ends, the Army's licensing program is dismantled, allowing prostitution to slip back into the shadows of southern cities. Today, this bottle of silver nitrate at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine stands as a stoic witness to the battle against a wartime epidemic. The University of California, Los Angeles, is one of the top-ranked public universities in the country. Its sprawling campus boasts 22 libraries, specializing in disciplines ranging from biomedicine to business management. And inside the Charles E. Young Research Library is one of the largest assortments of books and rare manuscripts in the world, the UCLA Library Special Collections. Gems include this medieval mathematical text, a first edition of Mark Twain's A Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and a hand-tinted 19th-century board game. But hanging apart from these historic works is an artifact with a far more contemporary aesthetic. This is a framed oil-on-canvas painting, maybe three feet across. It's painted in a very simple, plain style, a lot of green, a lot of red. Critics once regarded this piece as a trailblazing work of an up-and-coming talent. Yet this image had a hidden agenda. This is a painting that had a secret. What is the artful truth behind this colorful canvas? 1926, Chicago. Fine art lovers flock to an exhibition of a new style of painting called modernism. The modern movement was all about extolling this ideal of absolute originality. The show features works by several promising artists. But one piece, now in the UCLA Special Collections, sets visitors abuzz. It's called Aspiration. This new painting appears to show an American woman doing laundry. It's a very striking image, and it got a lot of attention. Critics laud the work as inspirational and clamor to learn more about its creator, a little-known painter named Pavel Jordanovich. But despite the acclaim, the artist is infrequently photographed and seems wary of attention. Jordanovich apparently does not really give interviews. He doesn't make public appearances. The painter burst onto the scene at a New York art show just 10 months earlier. He described his unique two-dimensional approach as disembracionist, which translated from Latin means anti-shadow. Critics seize on the concept and deem it an entirely new genre of modernist painting. There was cubism, futurism, surrealism. Jordanovich was a pioneer of disembracianism. Later that year, the painter's star rises even higher when a prominent French publisher selects Aspiration to appear in its prestigious Modern Art Review. So Jordanovich was already an artist you could look up in a reference book. That's pretty amazing for a guy who's just shown a couple of paintings. Yet the man himself remains very much a mystery. It's very hard to find anything out about him. But soon the art world will discover the truth about their ascending star. 
He's got this secret that he wants to spring upon the world. So who is Pavel Jordanovich? And what has he been hiding? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's 1927, and art critics from Chicago to Paris are raving about the definitive style of a new painter named Pavel Jordanovich. But despite his burgeoning popularity, little is known about this emerging artist. So who is Pavel Jordanovich? In August 1927, the Los Angeles Times publishes a stunning revelation. Pavel Jordanovich was a fraud. There was no such person. He was created by a writer by the name of Paul Jordan Smith. The California-based Smith says he painted the so-called disembrationist works himself. He had created these paintings as an elaborate practical joke. He had no training whatsoever in art or painting. Smith explains that the idea took root three years earlier when his wife Sarah, an amateur artist, submitted a painting to a local art show. Apparently, it wasn't too well received. Some of the people said it's distinctly of the old school. It was not uh, a modern painting. Smith felt the critiques were off the mark. Well, Smith thought art critics are very easily influenced by what other people are saying and really are not independent thinkers. So when he heard about a modern art show in New York, he decided to fool the critics. 
by submitting the most absurd artwork he could muster. So he got some paint and canvas, and in about an hour, he produced the painting. To further perpetrate the ruse, he created a persona. He figured that his real name, Paul Jordan Smith, was just too ordinary. And he knew that there were a lot of Russian modern painters. So Paul became Pavel, and Jordan Smith became Jordanovich. And the gambit paid off. It's not only accepted into the show, it garners glowing reviews. I think he was genuinely surprised at how effusive the praise was. Emboldened by his success, he coined a lofty-sounding term, disumbrationism, to celebrate his lack of skill. Basically, he did not know how to paint shadows, so he figured he would invent this new style. But after nearly three years of fooling the art world, he finally decided to end his stunt. Well, the whole point of the hoax was to prove a point. So the only way to drive that point home is to finally reveal the hoax. Shockingly, even after Smith reveals the ruse, some critics refuse to disavow their praise. Most of the critics uh, took the line that Smith must have actually had some native talent. And even though he was trying to create bad paintings, maybe he created good paintings instead. Yet despite this adulation, Smith readily hangs up his paintbrush to reestablish his career as a writer. And though he achieves success in the field of letters, it's this painting in the UCLA Library Special Collections that recalls what is his most enduring accomplishment, pulling off perhaps the 20th century's greatest art hoax. Garden City, Kansas. This small community got its start as a rail town, but today is known as a bastion of agriculture. And celebrating the region's agrarian roots is the Finney County Historical Museum. Standing out amongst the displays are a horse-drawn grain drill and a cream separator. But according to Garden City detective Michael Radke, one artifact here tells a disturbing story the region would rather forget. This object is black, made of leather, has pieces of silver on it. This item was worn in the committing of a crime that shook a small town to its core. This was a gruesome act that completely confounded authorities. Who wore this boot? And how did his case transform the way we think about crime? November 16th, 1959, Holcomb, Kansas. On this Sunday morning, 15-year-old Nancy Ewell stops by the house of her best friend, Nancy Clutter. Nancy Ewald came to the house to get Nancy Clutter for church. But when she knocks on the door, she's greeted by silence. It's very odd for the Clutter family to miss an engagement or not to be ready to go to church. With the door unlocked, a curious Nancy enters the house. But when the teenager ascends the stairs, she's greeted by a gruesome sight. She saw very horrific scenes of violence. It was bloody, and it was truly terrifying. The traumatized teen rushes to alert her father, who in turn contacts the police. When the sheriff's deputies arrived, they were really horrified of what they discovered. The body of Nancy Clutter, along with her brother and mother, are discovered bound with rope and shot to death. But this nightmare isn't over. 
they searched the house, and in the basement they found Herb Clutter had been killed. Just steps away, they discover a bloody footprint. But there's little else to go on. Word of the brutal crime quickly spreads, leaving many to wonder, who executed this peaceful family, and why? The sensational case is handed to the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, and they immediately turn the focus to the last known person to see the family alive, Nancy Clutter's boyfriend, Bob Rupp. They brought Bobby Rupp in for questioning and did ask him to submit to a polygraph. He claimed no knowledge of the murders of the Clutter family. Rupp passes the polygraph and is quickly released. It seems the case is running cold. But then, investigators receive a tip from a man serving time for burglary named Floyd Wells. What Wells told the KBI was that his former cellmate was involved in the murders of the Clutter family. The former cellmate, a fraudster named Richard Hickok, spoke of his desire to rob the Clutter family. And with the help of a fellow jailbird named Perry Smith, he began plotting. The authorities find Wells' claims credible and begin the hunt for the two ex-cons. Investigators discover that Perry Smith's last known address was in Las Vegas and alert local authorities to be on the lookout for the pair. And on December 31, 1959, six weeks after the massacre, their strategy pays off. Two Las Vegas, Nevada policemen on routine patrol spotted Hickok and Smith, stopped them, and arrested them without incident. When investigators interrogate the suspects, Smith's footwear catches their eye. Black leather boots with soles that look strikingly familiar. They would have told them, hey, look, we got boot prints, we got footprints, your boots look like they match. One of those boots is now on display at the Finney County Historical Museum. With evidence linking them to the scene, Hickok and Smith confess to the killings. And finally, investigators gain some insight into what motivated their cold-blooded brutality. Hickok's plan was to enter the Clutter farmhouse because he was expecting to find a safe full of money. They didn't find a safe, but what they did find was Herb Clutter. The pair interrogated Clutter, but the frightened father insisted there was no safe. Convinced Clutter was lying, Hickok and Smith took him hostage and tied up the rest of his family. They ransacked the house in search of the safe. But when they failed to discover it, they became enraged and shot Herb Clutter in the head. After the suspects killed Herb Clutter, then they proceeded to execute the rest of the family. But the question remains, why were Hickok and Smith so convinced there was a safe in the first place? It seems the idea was planted by none other than Hickok's former cellmate, Floyd Wells. Wells was bragging Hickok that he had worked for Herbert Clutter out in Holcomb, Kansas, and that Herb Clutter had a safe full of money. He gave him a layout of the Herb Clutter farm, where it was located, as well as description of the supposed safe. But investigators learned that Wells's information was outdated. The family had long since constructed a new farmhouse with no safe inside. In the wake of their confessions, the pair are then returned to Kansas, found guilty of murder, and sentenced to death. The sensational trial so captivates author Truman Capote that he spends six years studying the case 
before publishing the groundbreaking book, In Cold Blood. The book In Cold Blood is now considered an American masterpiece, and for many critics, they consider it the best true crime book as well. And today, this boot sits at the Finney County Historical Museum as a chilling reminder of the unbridled greed at the heart of a true crime. Dawsonville, Georgia was put on the map in 1828 when a wave of rowdy miners thundered into this leafy Appalachian town looking for gold. And just off State Road 53 is a popular attraction that celebrates another side of the city's thrill-seeking spirit, the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame. Inside, visitors can view stock car memorabilia, like the uniform of Daytona 500 champion Pete Hamilton, a car driven by racing legend Curtis Turner, and the trophies of NASCAR favorite Bill Elliott. But one polished piece reveals the beginnings of the mainstream sport's mischievous past. This is painted black and silver. It's got some writing on the side. It's got a big number on the side. Pretty slick-looking artifact. As author Neil Thompson explains, factory machines like this were souped up for more than just speed. This was a way for poor Southern guys to live a more adventurous life and a more lucrative life than the one they've been living. So what role did this car play in a daring new enterprise? And how did it help create a popular national pastime? 1930, Atlanta, Georgia. Ten years after Prohibition banned booze across the nation, the illegal manufacturing and distribution of alcohol is running rampant. And among the most infamous criminals quenching Atlanta's thirst is one unlikely country boy, 16-year-old Raymond Parks. Raymond decided instead of working on the farm like other family members did, he was going to make some real money. By day, Parks works as a mechanic for his uncle at the Hempel service station. But at night, he hits the road, delivering backwoods-produced moonshine to his clients in the big city. So little by little, this enterprise grows, and Raymond is making more and more money. He could make $200 a week, which is nearly $3,000 in today's money. And the young Parks shows no signs of slowing down. He invests the cash back into his criminal enterprise, buying more cars and hiring more men to run hooch under the moonlight. The skills that these guys needed to develop at that time was to drive fast at night on windy dirt roads. The driver's nighttime daring earns them the moniker Moonrunners. Over time, Park's business flourishes. Not even the 1933 repeal of prohibition, which makes booze legal once again, stops the demand for Park's backwoods brew. People in the South still wanted moonshine from their local vendor like Raymond Parks, and that remained illegal because he was making it without paying the required taxes. As the demand for unregulated moonshine grows, Parks calls upon two hungry and fearless drivers, his cousins, Lloyd C. and Roy Hall. Both have a knack for driving fast, allowing them to easily escape most local law enforcement. But soon, Federal agents intent on stamping out the illicit trade are patrolling the back roads. One method that agents employed was to try and shoot out the tires of the moonshine runners. And with assembly line vehicles that max out at 80 miles per hour, 
even talented drivers like C and Hall find it difficult to outrun the feds. One by one, Park's moonrunners are picked off, and their illicit booze is confiscated. It seems his moonrunning empire is being eclipsed. So what Vote did was drill holes to see if he could make the engines run cooler. He would expand the cylinders so that they would run faster and stronger and harder. And when he applies his ingenious modifications to Park's fleet of cars, the results are astounding. Suddenly, the moonshine runners on these dirt roads are doing 100, 120 speeds that local guys like that had never reached before. Law enforcement doesn't stand a chance. And Park's bootlegging business is thriving once again. C and Hall become entranced by their new, more powerful vehicles and start racing other moonrunners just for fun. Soon the races become more competitive and move from dusty straightaways to oval tracks made in cow pastures. And the local community begins to take notice. Little by little, word spreads that these races are occurring, and pretty soon you've got thousands of people attending these Sunday races, becoming more and more popular all the time. The sport soon comes to be known as stock car racing, named for the fact that the cars look no different from anything that comes off the factory floor. As the nascent sport grows, Raymond Parks sees an opportunity to advertise for his legitimate businesses. He paints the logo of his boyhood employer, Hemphill Service Station, on C's number seven car, a replica of which is on display at the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame. Parks also begins paying for all of his cousins' race travel expenses in return for a two-thirds cut of their winnings. As the financial backer for these cars, Raymond essentially became the first team owner in stock car racing. And in 1947, the biggest players in stock car racing create an umbrella organization to govern the sport. And Red Vote names it the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, better known as NASCAR. Today, this 1939 Ford V8 racer, on loan from Park's private collection at the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame, stands as an example of how prohibition helped create a quintessentially American sport. Located on the eastern edge of the San Francisco Bay Area, Livermore, California is known for its 25 square miles of sprawling ranches and vineyards. But for more than 60 years, it's been the home of a world-renowned scientific research center, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Visitors to the lab's Discovery Center can take in an electricity-producing bike, a Cold War-era thermonuclear warhead, and the world's lightest substance, an insulator called aerogel. But buried deep within the archives is one deceptively ordinary item that carries significant weight. This artifact is a collection of pages with complicated diagrams. But according to Dr. John Kashani, the publication of this dossier offered vital clues to a confounding medical puzzle. This mystery has baffled scientists and physicians for years. What bizarre tale unfolds within these pages? And how did it paralyze one medical community? February 19, 1994, Riverside, California. A 30-year-old woman named Gloria Ramirez is rushed to the emergency room of Riverside General Hospital. She's vomiting, 
struggling to breathe, and falling in and out of consciousness. Ms. Romero's heart rate is extremely fast and her respiration is extremely fast as well. She is in dire need of attention. Dr. Umberto Ochoa, the chief of the ER, learns from paramedics that Gloria suffers from advanced cervical cancer. The team immediately supplies oxygen to help her breathe and administers drugs to steady her heartbeat. But Gloria's pulse is fading fast. Dr. Ochoa defibrillates the patient and makes a striking observation. He notices that there is an oily sheen and a garlic-like odor coming from her mouth. Then, an ammonia-like smell fills the room, overpowering one of the nurses. She leans into the patient, and unexpectedly she passes out. Dr. Ochoa and the team remain focused on the patient. But when a resident draws blood from Ramirez, she too falls victim to the overwhelming odor. She becomes nauseated and overcome and then collapses and has a seizure. As the stench fills the room, the ER team drops like flies. A third person faints and others complain of nausea and dizziness. The chief is forced to make a tough call. Dr. Ochoa, in an unprecedented action, evacuates the ER and takes all the remaining patients and staff outside. In a desperate attempt to save Gloria Ramirez, Ochoa stays behind, but his efforts are in vain. Unfortunately, after 35 minutes of resuscitation, Ms. Ramirez is pronounced dead. The cause of death is listed as kidney failure, resulting from advanced cervical cancer. But the mysterious sickness that began when she arrived continues to spread. 23 complained of illness that ranged from nausea to vomiting to headaches to blurry vision, and six ended up being hospitalized. With the hospital in a full-blown panic, everyone wants to know, what exactly caused this inexplicable outbreak? The county health department launches an investigation and draws a damning determination. The conclusion was that mass hysteria was responsible for the various health-related complaints of the staff that day. The hospital's doctors and nurses are livid and insist that panic had nothing to do with it. The ER staff is used to seeing all kinds of medical emergencies. To call it a mass hysteria is insulting to healthcare professionals. So the staff turns for help to Dr. Patrick Grant, the deputy director of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And when Dr. Grant pours through the autopsy report, he is struck by the name of one specific chemical compound, DMSO2. This compound can be a byproduct of a common household remedy used to relieve aches and pains called DMSO. Ramirez might have been using DMSO to treat her pain associated with her cancer. One of the symptoms of DMSO is a garlicky smell to your breath. The oily sheen could possibly have been explained by the DMSO treatment as well. But DMSO is a commonplace product generally thought to be harmless. In search of answers, Dr. Grant performs his own series of tests. He compiles his research in this report, now kept in the archives of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Grant believes that the very treatments doctors used in their attempt to save Ramirez may have altered the structure of the DMSO. 
They administered a number of drugs, and then they threw in massive amounts of energy with the defibrillations. And so we think that was a big chemical reactor. It is believed this process transformed the home remedy on Ramirez's body into DMSO4, a chemical not seen in the emergency room, but on the battlefield. It's described as a war gas, and it can be found in classified chemical weapons. Exposure to this tool of war can cause a number of symptoms, including dizziness, fainting, convulsions, and in extreme cases, death. If you compare the known symptoms to what the emergency room victims suffered on that night, the match is virtually perfect. Grant sends his report to the Riverside coroner, who deems this theory the most probable cause of the mysterious illness. And today, this report remains in the archives of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, a testament to the focus and tenacity that unraveled a toxic medical mystery. Culver City, California. Founded in 1913 by real estate developer and film fanatic Harry Culver, this town is still the home of the iconic MGM studio. But situated in this sunny center of show business is a most unlikely institution, the Venda Museum, a repository for the world's most comprehensive collection of Cold War artifacts. On display are more than 75,000 relics ranging from communist propaganda and surveillance equipment to a locker from Checkpoint Charlie. But one item here connects directly to the museum's name, Venda, the German word for turning point. It's about five inches tall. It's made of black plastic. It has a cylinder of metal pieces with numbers on it. As museum executive director and founder Justinian Jampol can attest, this object possessed the power to transform people's lives. It meant the difference between repression and freedom. What role did this stamp play in the most pivotal moment in Cold War history? November 9, 1989, East Berlin, Germany. 46-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Harold Jaeger is on patrol at the Bornholmerstrasse checkpoint along the 12-foot-high barricade known to locals as the Wall. The Berlin Wall was about 103 miles around the city, and it consisted of a system of concrete, barbed wire, and guard towers. Erected in 1961 by East Germany's communist government, the wall prevents the city's inhabitants from defecting to democratic West Berlin. Jaeger has loyally defended his post for 28 years and is under strict orders to shoot attempted escapees on sight. Jaeger's whole life is devoted to protecting this border. He's been there since he was 18 years old. He was committed and people were afraid of him. As he settles into his shift for the night, Jaeger is disturbed by the sound of shouting voices. Outside, a large crowd is demanding passage to the west. He tells them to go back to disperse, but they don't. Fearing he's outnumbered, Jaeger calls his supervisors for guidance. In an attempt to defuse the conflict, they instruct him to let a few of those gathered through. So Jaeger selects several demonstrators 
and authorizes their papers with a stamp like the one on display at the Venda Museum. But the tactic backfires. The crowd saw that there was a chance to get to the other side, and the pressure built even more. The mob soon swells to the thousands. Torn between duty and conscience, Jaeger fears that one wrong move could mean grave consequences. So he decides to act. He knew at that point that there was nothing he could do to stop them. And I think he suddenly sees his place in history. At 11.20 p.m., Jaeger opens the gates. And for the first time in 28 years, East Berliners are free to pass through the wall. Tens of thousands of people flood the gates, while others chisel away at the concrete barrier. It is a mass movement of people from one side to the other. And people were amazed that the Berlin Wall fell so fast. The regime just kind of gave up. Once there wasn't a wall to hold people there anymore, there was nothing left. The impact is immediately felt across the globe. But amidst the celebrations, many are left wondering, how did decades of oppression come crashing down in the blink of an eye? November 4th, East German demonstrators turn out in record numbers, clamoring for reform. There are protests in the streets, there are marches. People were demanding increasing rights. As the weeks wear on, the government realizes it must respond. So they hold a televised news conference, where an official from the country's ruling party, Gunter Schabowski, announces a modest reform. So he's in a position of explaining to the press how they're responding and how they're going to provide more opportunities for travel to the West. Journalists are thoroughly bored by the conference, believing it to be little more than false hope propaganda. But one journalist boldly calls the government's bluff. In a tense exchange, he asks Schabowski when the new rules on border crossings will go into effect. Schabowski is totally unprepared for this. He's simply given a folded-up sheet with some points to read, and it doesn't have the answers that he needs to respond. And instead of saying he doesn't know, he simply says, as far as he knows, immediately. With this off-the-cuff response, Schabowski has unwittingly created the impression that the Berlin Wall is open. This sets in motion a series of events that leads to Jaeger standing at the Berlin Wall at the Bornholmer Straße border crossing, staring down a crowd and making the historic decision to lift the gate. The event triggers the demise of communism in Europe and brings about a peaceful conclusion to the Cold War. And today, this stamp, coveted for so many years by East Germans, is on display at the Venda Museum as a reminder of an oppressive regime that was toppled by an accident and one man's heroic leap of faith. From rum-running racers to a fine art fakery, a silvery salve to a toxic lady. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.